It is, again, a blessed opportunity without doubt that each of us feel that we're able to come together in the health and in the other matters that make it such a tranquil and peaceful opportunity. We often pray in thanksgiving to God that things are as well and that we are able to assemble without harassment, that we're able to assemble without official interference, and oh, how thankful we are for that kind of a blessing indeed. As you probably have noted in the bulletin, uh, to tonight's lesson will be another installment, the eighth one, this calendar year already, the eighth installment of questions and answers. As always, we're certainly delighted to give thought to those questions, and I'll always invite you to put questions if you have them in, in the box there in the vestibule, or if you wish to just voice them to me personally, I'm, I can certainly take care of writing those down as, uh, as the case might well be. But I would always say that it's even if you do voice them to me, I always make an effort to make sure that anonymity remains, whereas only you and I will know, in fact, that you're the one that asked it. But of course, tonight, many of these come out of the box, and so I do not know, as usual, who asked them. And I'm always delighted that, in fact, that may well be the case as well. Questions and answers, you may have noted in the lesson text I selected in Luke 2.46, isn't it rather amazing that Jesus asked questions? He was admitted he was only age 12, but he was in the temple asking and answering questions, and so even he appreciated at that tender age the place, the pertinence, and the potential value that goes with questions. And so tonight, how about we get to, to our business of question number one. This question reads as follows. Define different types of fellowships. How are we to use these fellowships both inside worship and outside? A very good question. In fact, all the questions that are asked are asked in a very earnest way, it would seem, and there's no difference even in regard to this one. The subject of biblical fellowship is sufficiently involved that this could easily comprise a whole series of lessons. And so my comments will be relatively brief, admittedly, but I do hope that they spark within us some interest as well as the basic thrust of what's involved in the Word itself. So on the slide, could we go ahead and note some of these matters? Fellowship, as that word appears, it again appears fairly often. But in the New Testament, it's the translation of the Greek word koinonia. Now, as you and I look upon that word, I think we have a sense of perhaps what's involved in fellowship. But I believe it might be best just to look at the way that original word is defined, give some appreciation to the placement and context in the verses in which it appears, and then draw our conclusions based on that. I've asked you to notice that that particular word has the following connotations. It has to do with the share that one has in anything. So whatever you may be a part of, the word fellowship can make reference to your share in that particular event or activity. You may notice that 2 Corinthians 8 verse 4 uses it that way, as it speaks about the character in that case of even our contribution. Now we'd say, for example, that the contribution taken up of this congregation, you and I have some small part in it, but that small part could well be called our fellowship in that total collection or contribution. Not only that, the word can be used in a way to refer to the bond which unites Christians together. You'll notice examples such as Acts 2.42 appears to use it that way, as well as Philippians 1 verse 5. 
In other words, you can then speak about the union, the unison, the togetherness that we as Christians enjoy. And isn't that a marvelous thought? Finally, you'll notice that other passages use it in a way that makes it appear as follows. It's used as a, the togetherness that we enjoy with God. Now, it may well be that that one is a rather fascinating one in its own right to think that. As Christians, we occupy a sphere, a place in which we are in communion with God. Now, as grand as that thought is, it nonetheless is the absolute presentation of 1 John 1, verses 6 and 7. And so, perhaps with regard to that, let's develop now a few thoughts about the way that word is used in all those ways. First of all, fellowship is connected identically with truth. I say that because the inspired writer John said it that way. Again, 1 John 1, verses 6 and 7, absolutely assert that fellowship that we enjoy with God and with one another is predicated on our mutual placement in the truth. So one of the first thoughts I'd offer is the whole idea of this fellowship must be grounded in the realization of truth. That means, of course, the Word of God is the basis upon which it rests and is the matter that governs the character of, of its placement, or in fact, what one's able to say about it. You'll notice then that these verses rather interestingly follow. That means that fellowship must be very closely guarded. It cannot be taken loosely, lightly. It cannot be ignored in terms of its appreciation. I've asked you to notice in 2 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 14, the word fellowship is used exactly this way. You perhaps remember well that Paul asked of the Corinthian congregation, does light have communion with darkness? And as he continues through that list, then he talks about the, does fellowship exist between Christ and Belial? Well, they're, they're polar opposites. They're completely different. And that was true of all the other elements in those listings as well. Doesn't that then highlight that fellowship must be carefully guarded? It mustn't be extended beyond the bounds in which God would authorize its extension. All of that noted allows us then to draw these, con these consequences. You and I as Christians must then realize we are not in a position to extend fellowship based upon this truth beyond the limits or the bounds which, in fact, God has placed it within. You may notice that there are a number of warnings in the Bible about those who not only have done it, but in some cases they considered doing it. In the Old Testament, now that one may appear a bit unusual, but in Psalm 94, verse 20, there again is an Old Testament reference to the closeness with which fellowship must be guarded and not extended beyond the bounds that would be appropriate. In 2 Chronicles 19, 2, which, interestingly enough, will actually have a role to play in the second question tonight as well. So this turned out in a rather fortuitous way to work together. But in 2 Chronicles 19, 2, there was a scene there where you can picture the situation. There was a king whose name was Ahab. And you and I probably well recall he was known for being evil. He did that which was not right before God. There was another king whose name was Jehoshaphat. 
the time came Jehoshaphat extended fellowship to Ahab. God had something to say about it. He rebuked Jehoshaphat for doing it. You shouldn't have done that. There was a line of distinction between what you stand for and what he stands for, and you could not, you were not able to legitimately cross that boundary or that line. I would simply offer you to say, God rebuked Jehoshaphat on that occasion. And He did so, reminding him that you have a particular element in truthfulness and association with me that cannot be extended lightly to others. Now that principle, of course, is also found in the pages of the New Testament. I would be quick to say, though, that we do have to realize this. From a practical standpoint... Isn't it true that fellowship can be seen somewhat incorrectly? For example, now you and I, if you visit the grocery store to purchase your groceries, well, just the fact that there's somebody else in there, perhaps the cashier who happens to be a denominational person, and you know it, well, is it wrong to pass through that person's line? Fair question. It all boils down to what then does this fellowship involve? To what extent can you permit it to go? In 1 Corinthians 5, verse number 10, we have a statement that therein is made that does seem to offer some guidance on a point such as this one. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I'll simply read verse 10. But in that context, Paul was reprimanding the Corinthian congregation for some of their behaviors, and as a part of it, he drew to the particular matter an issue touching our subject to this point. It says in verse number 9, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. Paul's point's easy to appreciate, isn't it? If you were to take the point that you literally can have no communication, no association in any way with any person who is not a faithful servant of the Lord based on the Bible, you'd have a pretty solitary life. You wouldn't be able to go anywhere, perhaps outside the bounds of your own yard. Paul says that's not what God calls us to. What you do have to realize is, though, there are fornicators and covetous and others And you have to realize that you can talk to them in the line of the grocery store, but you cannot extend a hand of fellowship under the banner of the truth of God to them. There's a difference between those two things. And so on that slide, let's try to perhaps be as specific as this. Fellowship is a togetherness, a mutual support a statement of strong camaraderie, if you will, in which you and this other person are sharing a very basic element of communication and a foundation and a resource in life that is beyond mere acquaintance. It's beyond mere outward appearance. It is that that we cannot extend to those, again, whom God does not permit us to extend it to. So on the slide, look at some of the ways that concept appears. In Galatians 2 verse 9, you notice there Paul used the word fellowship in light of the camaraderie that he and James and Peter were able to feel. Notice again how strong they were all based on the matter 
of the truth of the Word of God. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16, it is described under the banner of communion with the Holy Spirit. A sphere of existence in the way that I have at least defined it or described it. Finally, you may notice it does involve an element of strong appreciation in what you and I would call communication, Philemon verse 6, as well as Hebrews 13. Now, I've said all of that to remind us that, again, we have to be cautious. We have to realize there is something distinct between faith, as the Bible has outlined, and what others may call that idea. And we can extend the hand of fellowship to them. It is with that we might close that slide by saying, we as Christians, thus, are not at liberty to extend this matter of fellowship as though there is no difference between us and this other person is going to heaven just like we are. We can't leave someone with that impression if we know that they do not enjoy the truthfulness and are not committed to it in the way the Bible has described it. Now, you and I know the denominational world does not look at it this way. You perhaps have heard people say to you, well, we're all going to heaven. It's just we're going by different routes. Well, that just isn't so. Didn't the Lord say, He that's not with me is against me? Matthew 12, verse 30. I would say in light of all of that, then we have to be very mindful. For instance, when a congregation withdraws its fellowship from someone, well, that again means that we, by virtue of the authority of those elders, are not at liberty to extend fellowship then to this person if he or she has not repented. That's just one example with the idea of the other one at large that does speak about the care with which that idea is at least described. The second question of the night, like I mentioned, in fact, oddly enough, does take us back to Second Chronicles. And the question was asked this way. Explain the situation of the lying spirits in Micaiah's day. Does God endorse lying? A very good question. Again, it does work interestingly that this morning's Bible study class at least called upon us to notice some things in the life of David that raise that issue. Without reading the fullness of it, which is a bit lengthy, I confess, would you at least notice that this episode is delivered twice in the Old Testament? Once in 1 Kings 22, secondly in 2 Chronicles 18. So freely move between the two as you appreciate the explanation of the situation. Let me pick up the description as we noticed it earlier. There were two kings. The king of Israel was named Ahab. The king of Judah was named Jehoshaphat. Now, Ahab was known to be evil. Jehoshaphat, however, is typically recognized as being a good king. He did have an appreciation for the God of heaven. He was not given to idolatry. In general, he was not given to various other works of evil. Let me be quick to say that he wasn't perfect. There are some references to some rather poor choices he made. But he's generally described as a person, more often than not, who is good. But the issue now arrives, as you can see on that slide. There came to be a degree of closeness between Ahab and Jehoshaphat. I've, in fact, invited you to notice perhaps marriage is what helped to promote it. It would seem, from a lot of the descriptions given, that that did have a lot to do with it. 
But at the very least, we could say this. There was a city amongst the people of God known as Ramoth Gilead. There had been a time when enemy nations had come and taken that city. Well, Ahab had arrived at the point where it's time that we go get it back. And so he asked Jehoshaphat if he would send his troops to come and help me. So will you send your forces to join my forces so that we can recapture Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said, Why don't we ask a prophet of the Lord first to see what God's position on this might be? And so Ahab quickly convened the prophets in his empire, and they were prophets of Baal. And they said, Absolutely, go ahead. Things will go well. But now it's easy to notice that Jehoshaphat quickly observed something wasn't right about this. Because he immediately asked, Isn't there a prophet of the Lord besides? Jehoshaphat seemingly knew those prophets were not prophets of the Lord. And so he said, Isn't there a prophet of God that we can inquire? And then Ahab made this interesting statement. There's one man, but I hate him. Because he never prophesies good concerning me. Seems to me that speaks a lot about the person. If a prophet of God never has anything good to say about you, wouldn't it be time to reconsider the way you're behaving, the kind of things you endorse, and your government? Is it right with God or not? Oh, that our leaders today might think more at least along that line. But to say the very least, Jehoshaphat was such that quickly this man known as Micaiah was brought Somewhat amazingly, Micaiah was told before he came, you make sure to say what's right in the sense of what the king wants to hear. Now hear me, Micaiah, you make sure to say what the king wants you to hear. Well, Micaiah, first of all, when he appeared before the king, he sarcastically said, well, go ahead, take your venture, take your journey. It'll turn out well. And he said it tongue-in-cheek. He said it sarcastically. And the king recognized it. I want you to tell me the truth. Don't you just tell me something to be funny. And that's when Micaiah said, Okay, here it is. This venture, God will not bless it. You're not going to prosper as you go and try to bring back Ramoth Gilead into the Israelite camp. God is not going to be with you. You're going to be injured. You're going to be killed. And that's how it's going to end. Now, Ahab heard this. He heard what was going to transpire. He obviously didn't like what Micaiah had to say because he then told his officers, go take and lock him up. He didn't like to hear what Micaiah told him. But at that point, we now see what Micaiah had to say. Something about a lying spirit. And that was the nature of this question. As the description goes on, the following presentation is noted. Micaiah, as he described how it was that he gave the information, he said, I saw a vision. And in this vision, I saw God's throne. And a question was asked, how shall we get Ahab to go to battle? How shall we get him to fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one particular spirit said one thing. And one particular spirit said something else. But then Micaiah said there was a lying spirit. And this spirit said, I've got it. Here's how we'll get Ahab to go to Ramoth Gilead and to fall. I'll put a lying spirit 
in the mouth of his prophets. Now you'll notice that that lying spirit is said to have come from God. It is said that God endorsed it, God sent it, and as it then appeared in the mouth or voice of those prophets, they persuaded Ahab that he would indeed go to Ramoth Gilead and there he would lose his life. So back to the question. What is the situation with the lying spirits? Did God send them? If so, how do we understand this? God doesn't lie, does He? How could it be said that God sent a lying spirit? Well, that is a very good question. Now on the slide, I've asked you to notice there is just a rehearsal of some of that which we just noted. I would again invite you to read perhaps those two chapters as you see a lot of additional details given. But what we'd like to do at least at the moment is to notice that as Micaiah described these lying spirits and how that Ahab would fall to them, why don't we give thought particularly to that aspect of the record? I've asked you to notice that we must, embedded in our thinking, that God is a God of truth. He does not lie. Twice in the Word of God we are told it is not possible for God to lie. That is something beyond the capacity for Him to do. He cannot do it. In Titus 1 verse 2, for example, early on in the book of Titus, Paul spoke about eternal life, and he quickly identified God promised it, and he can't lie. So we have to appreciate God is not given to lying. He isn't given to deception that would be beyond anything that would liken that consideration. He is a God of truth in the words of Deuteronomy 32, 4. He is a God who upholds truth, and His Word is truth, John 17, 17. So having said that, we thus have to at least appreciate that in terms of this lying spirit, whatever is under discussion, we cannot take the position that God, with determination, purposely selected and sent a spirit whose sole purpose in lying was to lead someone to fall. That would not be consistent with the nature and the will of God. So then what are these lying spirits and what was under discussion here? The second observation that we might make to help us interpret it is this. The Word of God does teach, doesn't it, that each individual has the opportunity to make his or her own choices and decisions before God. In other words, each and every one of us shall give account of himself to God, Romans 14, 12. We will each be judged according to our works. So no one person can then so dictate and determine matters such that he or she can cause another one to be lost. Now in this case, think back to this host of prophets of Baal who appeared before Ahab and who appeared before Jezebel. And these false prophets encouraged Ahab, you go up to battle and it'll go well for you. Micaiah said there was a lying spirit in the mouth of those prophets that caused it. May we thus conclude by not only finishing that slide, but to also note the next one. And the last point on that one is this. Isn't it true that often in the Word of God, there are those who claim to be speaking for God when in fact they are not? How often did you encounter prophets in the Old Testament who made the claim to be speaking for God 
when in fact we know that they were not speaking for God. The prophet Micah had a lot to say about that in Micah chapter 3. Remember, there was a host of false prophets. Now, Micah called them false, but they themselves claimed to be speaking for God. We have the message of God, and we have what He has desired to deliver. But the fact is, they only made the claim it wasn't actually true. Well, these prophets of Baal, we know they were false prophets. They weren't the prophets of the God of heaven. The fact that Ahab believed them, the fact that he chose to believe the lie that they told, doesn't excuse the fact that it's all described in a way that we might portray like this. There are a number of times in the Bible when a circumstance like that, at least similar to it, takes place. And its connection to God is only by way of the fact that God is aware of the fact it's occurring. It's not that God sent them. It's not that God specifically selected and dictated what was to be said. It's that it took place with His knowledge. That is to say, these false prophets had the opportunity to know what the true prophets had told them. They knew what the nature of God's revelation was, and they chose to disobey it. They chose to not give to it. They, in essence, chose to follow idolatry. And God used them under the banner of what's called these lying prophets. And Ahab believed them. But it doesn't excuse Ahab, and it doesn't excuse the false prophets either. God's sovereignty is complete, isn't it? At the top of that slide, there are several well-known examples in the Bible. Situations like it. Let me perhaps mention the most famous one. You remember Pharaoh's heart in the book of Exodus? That's described two different ways. There are some passages that says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Question, did the God of heaven then so harden Pharaoh's heart that he could not respond to Moses, and therefore he ended up being lost despite anything else he could do about it? The text says God hardened his heart, doesn't it? But it's interesting, there are other passages that say Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Now which is it? Did God harden it? Or did Pharaoh, of his own choice, choose to harden it? I've listed both of them for you. One in Exodus 4.21, one of them in Exodus 8, verse 15. You and I realize that the way to appreciate and view that is this. Pharaoh was presented with evidence, facts. We all remember the plagues. He could see the frogs. He could see the water turn to blood. He could see the lice, the flies, the animals dying in the field. He could see all of it. He had eyes, and he could recognize that his magicians couldn't do that stuff. He could realize they were not equipped to respond and answer. And isn't it true that whenever Moses prayed to God, whatever it was, removed? It stopped. There was enough evidence Pharaoh should have known. The God of heaven is the true God. And these Egyptian gods are not God. But yet, though he could see the evidence, he chose to side with his own wishes and preferences, and he chose thus to not let God's people go. And he chose to rebuke Moses on a couple of occasions. The fact is, God allowed Pharaoh to make his own mind up. So when it says that God hardened his heart, that's just a way of saying God presented the facts, God presented the evidence, 
Everything happened with the knowledge of what it was that God's will presented. And God let Pharaoh make his own mind up. So it's true that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, but it's also true that God set the circumstances in motion, allowing Pharaoh to make his own choice. Same thing happened here in the day of Micaiah. God set things in such a way that this could be appreciated. God allowed those false prophets to make their choices, and He allowed Ahab to make his choice. The fact that they chose to go against the things of God doesn't change the fact God knew what was happening. He had presented the facts. He had presented the matters. Those lying spirits being from God are simply the individual choices that was made in light of those false prophets and Ahab himself. In essence, it's the permissiveness of the will of God. Let me give you a few other instances of the Bible where that took place. In Jeremiah 4 verse 10, it is there said by God Himself, I deceived them. Really? The God of heaven deceives people? How do you understand it? Here's how you understand it. God presented His truth. The people of Israel knew it. They had learned it all their life. They'd been faced with it. And now God allowed them to make their choice. God didn't deliberately and volitionally send about that which deceived them. But He did put in place the appreciation each person makes his or her own choice. And my permissiveness has let them make their own choice. The fact they're deceived is such that I knew well all along that that is what's happening. Isn't it true today it's the same for us? The book of Ezekiel describes it this way in Ezekiel 20 verse 25. I, God said, gave them statutes which are not good. What do you think about that? God's saying, I gave them laws which were not good. Really? What does that mean? That means this. God gave His will and His will is always good. We know that. We understand that. But there were occasions when God's people came up with their own laws. They legislated their own things. They weren't good. Did God know what they were doing? Sure He did. Did the fact that they put those laws in place, did it happen in essence with the permissiveness of God's will? God didn't stop them. He didn't intervene and say, striking them dead before they could put those laws in place. He let them make their choices. It's going to be that way on the day of judgment. There may be a lot of people who have believed a lie on this earth, and they'll be lost eternally for it. doesn't change the fact that they had access to the truth. They had access to what could save their soul. They chose to be deceived. They chose to not look at the evidence. In 2 Thessalonians 2, perhaps the strongest New Testament statement to this that, of course, has a bearing on you and me, is this. Allow me to read that one. Again, 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 11. In writing to the congregation at Thessalonica, Paul said, And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Now that sounds rather bad, doesn't it? God is going to send people what will deceive them so that they'll believe a lie. Again, we now know what that means. God presents His truth. There are those who, in faithfulness to it, attempt to be 
in harmony with that faithfulness in every way. There are others, and God will allow each person to make his or her choice. And they will be given to delusion. They will be given to what is not consistent with the Bible, and God will let them make that choice. He'll let them follow the matter of the lie. In the denominational world, in Exhibit A of that today, where for the last 500 or so years, that has been the guiding way. God has allowed people to make their choices. Now, as you and I close that second question, what about a third one? Question number three reads as follows. Why was God pleased with Abel's sacrifice, but not pleased with Cain's? Why not both? And that takes us back to Genesis chapter 4, early in the book of the, Bible, the first book of the Bible. The scene is so familiar that perhaps there's no need to rehearse the, the details of it, for we know that Adam and Eve had a couple of boys at that time. They were known as Cain and Abel. And the text rather quickly passes over their childhood and brings us to this observation in Genesis 4. Verse number 2 says, And she bare again his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So the occupation, or at least the principal livelihood, with which each one of these was associated was this. Cain was one who tilled the ground, had gardens. <clears throat> he did that which what, what brought forth the fruits, if you please, of the earth. But you'll notice that Abel is said to be a keeper of sheep. So he tended a flock, maybe even several of them. But at that point, verse 3 then says, And in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. So an offering unto God was offered by Cain to God, and it says, He took of that which was the fruit of the ground. Again, that was what his occupation apparently was. And then verse 4, And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. It's quickly noted that Abel also brought. So notice, God apparently didn't just tell Cain to offer, but Abel knew about this as well. But quickly note, it notes that God was not pleased with Cain's offering, but He was with Abel's. The next verse goes on to say, But unto Cain and his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. So you'll notice that not only did the boys offer, but it was also well known to them how God responded to it. So Cain knew that God didn't have respect to his offering. Now, it would seem that God directly communicated it to them. This was long before there were any days of intermediate priests, if you will. But you'll notice that Cain was angry. The text says, wroth. Then verse 6, God said to Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? In other words, if you do well, it is not something that Cain was not able to do. If you do well, you'll be accepted too, Cain. And then that verse ends, if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. 
And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And at that point, as we close verse 8, the basis for our question is already clear. Why did God accept Abel's but not Cain's? One of the first lessons that might be developed, God doesn't accept everything offered to him. He didn't accept Cain's. The text says he didn't. He didn't have respect to it. May we notice that premise has continued throughout the Word of God, hasn't it? He will not accept just everything that's offered to him. But in this case, do we know why he accepted Abel's but not Cain's? Well, you'll notice on the slide, this episode is mentioned not only here, but it's referred to another time in the Bible, and maybe we get a clue from the other one. Let's turn to Hebrews 11, and let's look at the way this is referenced at that time and see if maybe there is something that will answer our question. Hebrews 11 is the great honor roll of faith chapter of the Bible. It's a presentation of the development of what faith is. It begins in verse 1 with defining faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. But then in verse 4, we arrive at this. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. There are two things I would quickly point out about that verse. The first is the second word in the verse. What is the means by which Abel offered? The text says it was by faith. But isn't it true that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, Romans ten seventeen? That would thus suggest that God had communicated to Cain and Abel what was to be offered. So, that being true, Abel offered what God said he wanted. Cain did not offer what God said he wanted. Now that idea, of course, is very interesting and also, as simple as it is, it's also very profound because obviously that continues throughout all the Bible, both Old and New Testament. You offer to God what He has said He wants. To offer Him anything else is not only displeasing, but He has promised not to accept it. That was true for the worship underneath the old Mosaic law. Read Amos 5. God said, I will not accept your offerings. Why? Because they were not offered. First, they didn't offer what He wanted, and they didn't offer it the way He said He wanted it. Well, that's the same thing that had been true of Cain, and the same thing will be true of us. So in worship, we add mechanical instruments, if you please. Well, God has said, I don't want them. But yet, if we offer it anyway, should we anticipate God to accept it? Of course not. The second word in that verse that in fact speaks volumes, and maybe this one's easy to overlook. Faith was the second word in the verse. Look near the end of the verse. It says, God testifying of His gifts. You may note that's plural. It's plural in Greek. It's plural in English. So Abel offered not just one thing, but apparently several things. You'll also notice the word also appears in that verse. Could it be 
that Abel offered not only the fruit of his flock, but perhaps also what would have been the fruit of the ground. Could he have offered both? Again, the text says gifts. Whereas Cain only offered the fruit of the ground, not the fruit of the flock. Now, I would suggest at least with the word gifts, that would suggest that interpretation. I can't be absolutely certain of it. But if that be true, God had wanted both. Cain only offered one of them. Abel offered both, and thus Abel's was accepted, and Cain's was not. But going back to our first observation, it's very clear, it seems at the very least, that Abel offered what God said he wanted, and Cain did not. And God didn't respect what Cain offered. That's our third and final question of the night. As we've looked at each of them, I hope that we have at least been in a position to appreciate that the questions have been masterful. They've been very good as always. Usually I like to give you an indication. I do have a number of questions again waiting, so you have been very dutiful to supply the questions. I have quite a large number, so we probably will have another one of these sessions fairly soon. But as always, if you have questions, don't hesitate to make them known by putting them again in that box out there or sharing them with me in some other way. I hope that the questions are helpful. I hope that they're things that prompt our thinking. As always tonight, we use this as a convenient time to offer the Lord's invitation. If there's anyone in this assembly, and maybe you have believed a lie, just like those of Ahab's day, realize God has presented you the truth, and He allows you to make your choice. Oh, how sweet is the gospel plan of salvation. Won't you believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized? If you have become a Christian and you have not walked in faith, then you notice faith again comes by hearing the Word of God. So if your life is not a reflection of this book, the New Testament version of it, then you need to make some changes. That's called repentance. If tonight we could make assistance in that way praying for you and with you, and even perhaps studying with you or encouraging you in some direct way, we would be delighted. If we could do any of those things, we use this as a convenient, opportune time to extend that invitation and invite you to come while together we stand and sing.